0: Hey, how you doing? Got more. We have more here. Now that it's the weekend. we can really talk. If you thought two hour long episodes were a lot it's week it's Fourth of July weekend. you might be seeing all day long episodes. This might just be better off as like a twitch stream or something. Maybe I should just get into Twitch. But you know, I was thinking about the term old soul. old soul. Oh, he's just an old soul. You know what I like about you? You're you're kind of an old soul. And nobody really tries to quantify that. Nobody really tries to measure that. But it's a common enough phrase, and people don't even... They just kind of know it when they see it, or they know it when they meet somebody, or spend time with them. But it's one of those phrases that you can't use on yourself. It's like enlightenment referring to yourself as smart. you know, there's, there's certain things that you can't say about yourself because they're too self-serving. I mean, most complimentary qualities that a person may or may not have, you can't describe them yourself. You can't tell people you're that thing. Yeah, some things are objective enough, but still, it's like you can't tell someone, oh, I'm an old soul. Oh, I'm just an old soul. It is one of those things that kind of implies... There's something good about it. It's. It, I mean, it implies superiority. It means you're a little more relaxed, a little more wise. You've gained some wisdom. And I don't even know that people use it in a reincarnation cycle sense. But that's one of the ideas behind reincarnation is that you incarnate. And each time the idea is to improve a little something else to respond to whatever karma you've accumulated in a slightly different way from last time and then eventually you achieve liberation liberation. That's the idea. And so when when someone says old soul, they don't necessarily mean that in an Eastern context. But it kind of fits with that idea. That the older your soul is, the more cycles it's been through, the more lives it's lived, the more wisdom you will have acquired. And I'm not going to say that's how things work. You know, I'm not going to say that's definitively how things work. I like the idea, and it feels right sometimes. That's, that's what I would say about reincarnation. I don't actively think about it at all it very rarely crosses my mind. But the idea of, you know, I mean, obviously the movie Groundhog Day, people have said models this. But sometimes it does feel like in everybody's life, they have some sort of code they have to unlock to get to the next level. But then eventually you do beat the game. And you shouldn't see soul liberation as just a game. But guess what? You should. Because that's what you realize is that <laughs> that's a game too. And where you go from there, I mean, that's probably beyond any word, any definition we have, any, any, it, it's beyond everything. It, that truly is the beyond. That's what people refer to when they talk about the beyond. But just on a basic intuitive level, I don't think it's even an unhealthy viewpoint if it's wrong. Like if if that's somehow wrong, the idea that each lifetime we basically have a code to crack or a number of codes. And if we don't crack the code, we either stay where we're at, or we go down a level, something to that effect, you know, you can also fail, or you, you can succeed and move on. And yeah, it's, it's, you shouldn't necessarily think of it in those terms of like, our form of games. Because we're talking about souls here, how could that possibly be a game? Well, that's a game too. And that should tell you something. The fact that even the matter of where your soul goes from one body to the next The fact that that is a game, too, should tell you something. And I'm confident in that. Even if it's not real, I'm confident that that is a game, too. But it's funny, because when somebody says somebody's an old soul, it's never an insult. I was hanging out with her, and she's an old soul. Even though we think of getting old as sort of a negative thing. Like when we talk about people, even right before they die, they're 100 years old, we talk about how young they felt, or or how young they seemed. And when an old person tells you, like, I still feel young, I still feel like I've made it a point to think like a young person, and that is very healthy, and we have enough anecdotal evidence that elderly people who still keep a young mindset are healthier and happier. I've never heard a convincing argument otherwise. The only possible, and this is a stretch, but the only possible counter argument to that is there was some study done years ago that I remember seeing and it talked about how negative cynical people live longer. And that sort of goes against, you know, our sort of colloquial knowledge, which is like, if you're negative and cynical, you're more likely, it's more likely to manifest in sickness. You'll have psychosomatic issues and you might have those. I mean, yeah, we all know people get ulcers when they dwell on stress and negativity. We all know stress uh, and, and just different negative emotions do have an impact on you. But it was interesting finding out that people who are generally more untrustworthy, cynical, curmudgeons, they live longer. And maybe some of that is just the fact that they're they, they're more paranoid, and so they're less likely to put themselves at risk. I, I would bet that people who come from that point of view take far fewer risks. And I don't even know how this all mapped out in terms of age. I don't know how they measured it all. And I mean, this is a weird, how do you even truly measure that? How do you truly measure negativity? Yeah, you can talk to somebody, you can do a psychological study and pick up on what's going on with them. But I thought it was interesting either way. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's 100% true or not. I just thought it was an interesting idea because it kind of goes against our knowledge that happiness equals health. And that's not always true. And then, yeah, you know, indulgence, risk-taking, there's just different things that play into why maybe happy people happy people tend to be more impulsive. And I know that's true for myself, where I am a naturally negative, cynical person. My natural baseline is that way. I wasn't raised to be that way. It's just my baseline as a human. And I've tried to wrap my brain around it. I've tried to control it as best I can. And I think I do an okay job of that most of the time, In my at least in my day-to-day life. I don't know how I come across on here when I'm just ranting. Uh, but... You know, I do consider my baseline fairly negative, fairly cynical, whether I like it or not. And I used to, th- I used to think that I liked that more than I do now. But I've realized I can't abandon it either. But I know that when I'm feeling good, when I'm feeling happy, I'm far more impulsive. I'm for I'm far more likely to want to go on adventures to want to, you know, check things out. Whereas if I'm feeling more negative, Even though I don't necessarily shut myself in, I don't wall myself off like a depressive or anything, but I do do less. You know, I do interact with people less. I might be less indulgent, you know, at this point, for sure. But I do think there's something to be said for like happiness tends to, people tend to be more impulsive to go with the flow. And sometimes the flow leads you to, leads you to death, I guess is what I'm getting at. But it is funny, like the, yeah, the idea of an old, even though getting old in our culture is seen as negative, and even old people kind of use youth as a baseline for happiness, and whether or not they're living their quote unquote best life as people <laughs> terribly say, you know, it's, it's one of those phrases, it's pretty rough, but uh With, uh, with, with old people, like they still use youth as a baseline. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like we know why people use youth as a baseline. It's not ageism. It's not because people hate old people. People love their grandparents. People love older people. But the reason why they use that as a baseline is because it represents more freedom, like movement. You're sharper, you're able to do more. That's basically what old when old people say like, well, I try to I don't try to think like an old person. I try to think like a young person. What they mean is that throw out the words young and old, they're saying, I like to think like somebody who is physically and mentally capable of doing pretty much whatever they want. And so that's what they're saying. It's It's not about whether being young is better or not. It's just about like youth represents a certain freedom and flexibility physically, mentally, maybe otherwise. But it would be funny if people started using old soul as an insult. Oh, I don't want to hang around them. But I mean, sometimes you don't want to be around old souls. That's the thing is sometimes you want to be around people who are wild and crazy. And I would dare say that a lot of old souls are tricksters. Actually, I don't think that's daring at all. I mean, if you think about Jungian archetypes, you know, he talks about how Carl Jung talks about how Each archetype basically has two sides. It's like two sides of the same coin. I mean, it's not entirely different from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and wrathful deities and benevolent deities, where they are two sides of the same coin. They're linked. You know, you can throw all kinds of words around, like dualism or whatever you want, but we're just talking about two sides of the same coin. And... That idea is just universal. The idea that things have two sides. Yeah, they might have more, but it's like using that example, like using the halves, is a, a universal idea. And the Jungian archetype of the old man has the inverse of the trickster. Those two are correlated. Where the old the old man represents a sage wisdom. But he's also prone to playing practical jokes and tricking you. And you even see that in movies and stories. I'm trying to think of a good example here, but I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure everybody's coming into contact with with this. But there will be an old wizard or sage in a movie or book, And like the the young warrior characters, let's just use like a fantasy setting as one example. This plays out in every kind of setting every kind of story imaginable. But the young warriors, let's say, they seek out the old sage, they seek out the wizard, they're seeking his wisdom, his help, his magic, whatever it is, whatever combination of those, they're going to see the wizard. But they come to find out that while he is this, he is what you'd expect. He has a long white beard. He's clearly magical. But he's got kind of a childlike sense of humor. He might prank the main characters. And they're kind of shocked. I mean, even Yoda kind of did that. When Luke finds Yoda, we got our Star Wars oh, this is beautiful. We have our month we we've met our quota early. It's very rare these days, early on in the month, to meet the Star Wars quota. Which just means I have to I have to reference Star Wars once. I have to appeal to the the great fandoms out there and mention Star Wars. I have to to communicate that I, too, am a human being by referencing Star Wars at least once a month. But Yoda is that character. Yoda's the old man, very old. And he's a wizard. But when Luke gets there, he doesn't even realize it's the wizard because it's just this, this guy poking him with a cane and playing tricks on him. And making weird little jokes. And that's not just Yoda. I mean you see that. Um, I'm trying to think if Gandalf does that in Lord of the Rings. There's, def- there's a zaniness I guess. There's kind of this zaniness. This, exen- this eccentricity that comes out in the form of a prankster or a trickster. Alongside the wisdom. And usually in those sorts of stories. Like in Star Wars. Luke has to get through that. Before he can actually gain the wisdom that Yoda has to offer. Before the characters can actually get the assistance or the help from this wizard, he has to kind of test them in a way. But you never really know if it's some kind of test. Where he acts like an insane, babbling old man who's, who's playing pranks on these people who are earnestly seeking his help. It's like almost like they have to pass through some kind of test. And Carl Jung put those together too. And I don't, I don't think all of these stories that utilize that were inspired by Carl Jung. You know, some of them predate Carl Jung. He's responding to the same idea that they are and, this, and the same real life experience. Because, you know, fiction is, no matter how f- fantastic it is, it is influenced by the world as you see it, by the people as you see it. And most people have known an old man. Like, it's the grandpa who is more likely to act childish when he's playing with his grandson. Whereas, like, the parents are all serious. They're like, oh, well, we got to make sure Bobby doesn't eat too much cake. Oh, we don't want him playing with that. But the grandpa is the one who indulges it. The grandpa is the one who, who will help the kid prank his parents. I've seen that in stories. Where the grandpa is the character who's, like, whispering to the kid, like... Don't tell your dad, but we're going to fill his shoes with sand. (laughs) Awful. That's an awful prank, filling someone's shoes with sand in a house. Uh, And then it's the grandpa who's giving the kid the extra piece of cake against the parents' wishes. That's a trickster. And so it's no coincidence that Carl Jung made the trickster and the old man, the sage, two sides of the same coin. And it does parallel the idea of wrathful and benevolent deities. And despite how that sounds, like if you've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's not that the wrathful deities are bad. Like the word wrathful makes it sound like, oh yeah, two sides of the same coin. One side's good, one side's evil. That's not how the wrathful and benevolent deities... I always forget if benevolent is the word they use, but that's the idea. But the idea is that you access them both. You you know, deity yoga is where you identify with a particular with the qualities of a particular deity, you essentially ch- uh, channel it. And you can do that meditatively. But it's something you can also integrate into your life. And people do that all the time. I know I talked about this, I think last year. I think it's only come up on once, uh, come up on this show once, which is amazing. It's amazing if anything has only been mentioned once, given how much I repeat everything. But I do remember talking about wrathful deities, and that's something that people do with movies and TV. They emulate qualities of characters they like. And it's not always... They're not always good... They're not always, like, nice qualities, necessarily. Because it's like the idea of, like, to get by in the world, to, to get a good job, to be successful, to make something of yourself. You can't be too nice. And sometimes you do have to be in the race and look out for yourself and compete. And in some ways, that's channeling, that's deity yoga. And you could channel the qualities of a wrathful deity who represents, you know, fierceness. I mean, it gets in it it, it gets mystical. I mean, it's obviously mystical by nature. But basically, you're taking on the qualities of that deity. And you're going to act them out in your own existence. And there's, it goes into a lot more like when someone dies, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead gets you know, very into this stuff that I don't even think I could properly explain. I don't know that I, I properly absorbed it when I read it. But you know, when someone's dying, how they have this relationship with the wrathful and benevolent deities, and we're talking about life here, we don't need to get into how deity yoga plays a role in death, because I don't even know that I understood it when I read it. I liked it, but I don't know that I understood it. Sometimes sometimes you like things but don't quite understand them. But I did understand the general idea of deity yoga, and it comes up in different places. But it's like sometimes you have a certain character like th- that you act out, and you would never tell anybody that. But in your mind, you're kind of channeling them in a given moment when you need it. Or a person in your life. I mean, we, you, sometimes it's a person in your life. Like kids will try to emulate their dad. And it's like, no, their dad's not a deity. But like you can do that in many different ways with real people, with fictional people, with gods, with, with you know, deities. You know, you can do that. But you'll channel a benevolent deity when you need to be benevolent. When you need to be calm, when you, when you need to be cooperative. But there are times in life where that doesn't serve you. I mean, defending yourself would be probably the best example I could use for a situation in which you need a wrathful deity. If you have no choice but to, to kill or be killed, being able to channel the qualities of a wrathful deity is going to help you in that situation. And I mean, I personally don't go through life thinking this way but it can help you come into contact with that ability no matter what you call it no matter what you associate it with the idea of deity yoga can help you it can it can kind of help you take on different roles depending on a different situation and i when i talked about this before i know i mentioned that odin in norse mythology will take on the characteristics of whatever role he's playing. Like he will invest himself completely in whatever role he's playing because he will appear to people as something other than the, the big God. He will appear to people as a peasant when he's seeking information. He will not be Odin, but he will be just a villager or a peasant seeking information. But he, whatever he does, he takes it on wholly. And that's something that you have to do to be good at life which I don't know if I completely am, but it's, I I do know that if you want to be good at your job or if you want to be good at school, even if it doesn't feel like that's you, like I got okay grades, you know, I would say I was a B plus average student. I would say I was a B plus, A minus, you know, not in math or science so much, especially math, but in, in, in general in school, I was like a, I would say a B plus student. I'm not bragging about my B plus, but I'm just saying like, that's the kind of student I was. And I had friends who I would say were smarter than I was, who got worse grades, who didn't do well. And that's become a common trope, the idea that you're too smart for public school. But I knew people like that. I knew people who were old souls, for one, who didn't do well in public school. I don't think they would have done well in private school either. I don't think they would have done well in the the, the educational institutions that we have in this country and what they should have done instead, I don't know. But I didn't feel that I belonged there either. Like, I didn't buy in. But somehow I was able to like depersonalize. I think some of that came from my parents, honestly. I think it was either my mom or dad at some point, I think it was my mom telling me something my dad had said, which was like, when it comes to something like school, you just have to play the game the way they want you to. And I would agree with that up to a point, like I would agree with that in, in, you know, K 12 school college you should be able to stray from that but it turns out you can't stray too far but in college you should be able to stray from that idea like college should be about challenging the game and they trick you into thinking you are meanwhile they're actually convincing you to take on certain sets of beliefs depending on the college but these days it seems like that describes most colleges But when it comes to getting through high school up to that point, I think some of that is like hearing that advice as a kid and also being told that basically my freedom as a kid depended on getting certain grades. Like my mom spoiled me and she was very lenient as far as what I was allowed to, you know, as far as movies and things that I could be exposed to. And she encouraged me to pursue my interests. But there was always this hanging over my head was the fact that the one thing that she was unwilling to accept was poor grades. And the only times that I remember her getting the only times I remember like her being deeply mad and disappointed with me was one time I got like a D in math. I had been placed in the next level of math and it was just beyond me. And I wasn't invested in it. I didn't care about math. So I would just tune out. And and it was, so it was some, I don't, it could have been geometry. I don't remember what it was. And the teacher wasn't very good. You know, I mean, I can, I can make all kinds of excuses for that D. 22 years ago, however long ago that was. Got to make excuses for that D I got in math. But uh, my mom was very upset you know, even though she didn't have super high standards for my math grades, like she never expected me to get an A in math. But getting a D was completely unacceptable to her. And I I heard about it. She didn't bust my teeth out. But but I she made it very clear that that was the one thing that was unacceptable was to pretty much get anything below definitely anything below a 3.0 grade point average. But there was kind of an expectation that you'd be somewhere around the 3.5 mark, which I think was honor society. So I was, I was somewhere, you know, B, a B plus student average, I would say, is how I ended up. And that got me off the hook, like to her credit, because I did that, because, you know, and again, that's not that's not honors. That's not a 4.0. It's not something that you'd brag about. But it was just still like a standard that she held me to. And I met it, which I appreciate. And so I don't know how much that influenced the fact that I was able to play the game. And I did see it as sort of a role. Like the person that I was to my teachers, or the person that I was when I when I do schoolwork, I knew that wasn't me. And because of that, I think I was able to detach myself. And I don't I wasn't thinking this at the time. But when I look back at like, because I because I look back and I'm like, how did I do that? How did I get through school with my sanity, even remotely intact? Because that situation is completely insane. Even just the schooling itself is insane. And then when you look at all of the social pressures, everything else going on, the fact that you occasionally get in trouble, there are so many different moving pieces to being a kid in the public school system that I look back and I'm, and and, and so many of them are malfunctioning that I look back and I'm just like, Oh my goodness. Like, how did I get through that? But I think somehow, like, I think the pressure that my parents put on me and, uh, the fact that my own freedom and interest depended on me meeting that standard, I think caused me to like find a way because I don't blame the friends of mine. I had who, I mean, I had a friend who, who dropped out in 10th grade and he's one of the smartest people I've ever known. I haven't stayed in, in touch with him. Every once in a while I talked to him, he dropped out in 10th grade. I think he eventually got his GEDs. one of the sharpest people I've ever met. And he went on to be in a famous band. Like he ended up, you know, devoting himself to music. And he's one of the, probably one of the more successful, definitely one of the most successful people that I went to school with. And he worked very hard. I mean, he had natural talent, but he worked very hard to get there. And he took another childhood friend of mine along with him for the ride, um, uh, which is great. Like I, I, I'm, I have nothing but, uh, But uh, vicarious happiness that two kids who were an important part of my early years as, a you know, going back with one of them to elementary school, the other one to junior high. But two kids that played a big role in my childhood made something of themselves. Like I'm not necessarily a fan and I've I've made some weird remarks about it before because it is just kind of weird. You know, like when I say weird remarks, I just mean. Like when people have brought them up, they do it in kind of a starstruck way. And when you've known someone your entire life, you don't see them that way. So when other people are, are starstruck, it just makes for an awkward conversation. You don't really know what to say in that situation. But no, you know, it, it's amazing. But one of those guys, my point is, he dropped out, but he was incredibly smart. But the school system wasn't working for him. And you can clearly see where he made something big of himself. He's not a pop star, but he's in a well-known band who, who did something. And again, I'm not—first of all, I'm not even naming them, but I, I'm not name-dropping anybody. I'm just saying that this is somebody that I saw drop out of the system and actually become far more successful in a— more meaningful way than most other people could, because, yeah, I, I would bet some kid I went to school with who I don't know, maybe makes more money, maybe he maybe there's somebody who started their own business, maybe somebody has some really good job. I mean, there's a guy that I knew, and I found out he was making like six figures right out of college, and I couldn't believe it. So I mean, there might be somebody who, who's doing more, but this person I knew did something much more meaningful and larger with his life than just about anybody that I grew up with, which is fascinating to know somebody and see them do that, to see them go down that road, but to also have seen them struggle in the system. Like I don't know what kind of grades he got, but if he dropped out in 10th grade, it obviously wasn't working for him. The, the, the whole school thing was not working for him and that describes a number of my friends that describes a bunch of them and you would look at them and be like well why couldn't you just play the game and so even though i you know i might not have been aware of it myself like i decided to play the game for whatever reason i don't think i would have done well if i had dropped out i don't think i would have done well if i i don't think i'd be like who i am today if i had I don't know. I don't know if, if the challenges of school had overwhelmed me, if I had let them overwhelm me, if I wasn't able to kind of depersonalize myself, because that's what I'm talking about. This whole, this whole tangent, it's about having the ability to depersonalize yourself. And when I was in school, I think somehow, maybe through my parents' influence, I was able to say, I'm feeling the same dread and negativity about this stuff as my friends who are just kind of letting it slip through their fingers. But in my case, I'm going to depersonalize myself and I'm going to do the things that a good student does in this situation. And is a good student a deity? Are you performing deity yoga when you're like, I don't want to be a good student. I don't want to be here. But I'm going to do what I think a good student would do it's the same process. You know, it might not be as grandiose. Like, oh, wow, you got because you did that, you got a B plus. Wow, good for you. I don't know, kind of a this is a weird line of thought, but hopefully it makes sense. But to get back to the old soul idea, it is one of those things like enlightenment, or being smart, you know, when people are constantly signaling that they're smart. I run the risk of doing like that right here by being like, I got a B plus in school, I was a B plus average. I'm so smart. I'm so smart that I got B. That I figured out how to play the game well enough to get a B plus. No, hopefully that doesn't come across that way. You know, because I didn't take hard classes or anything. Uh, But a lot of what people do is to try to signal that they're smart. Because you can't just say I'm enlightened. You can't just say I'm an old soul. You can't say I'm wise. You can't volunteer that about yourself without seeming like the most despicable narcissist. And you already run that risk without saying that. Anytime you talk about yourself at all, you already run the risk of sounding like a despicable narcissist, even without insane superlatives like wisdom. Most wise. Oh, who, got, who, who won the award in your high school? In our yearbooks, they used to do this like these superlatives where it was best dressed most popular most likely to become the next dana scully and fox molder that was in one of my yearbooks most likely to become the, the next dana Fo- dana scull dana fox and Mo- and scully molder you're you're nothing but a scully molder like a scallywag or something did you say scallywag or scully molder stupid. Um, But they had those sorts of superlatives. And it's like, you can't assign a superlative to yourself is basically. And those ideas, like when you hear about wisdom or enlightenment, or being smart, or being cool, for that matter. Those might as well be superlatives in a high school yearbook. And you don't select yourself for that. You don't get to choose yourself as best dressed. And hey, you know what? In addition to being a B plus student, I was selected best dressed in my eighth grade yearbook. No, I was never selected for any of those. I never won any of the superlatives. I wish that would be so awesome if I had won best dressed for being a fat kid in baggy clothes. I'm a fat kid who just wears ill fitting clothes, and I, I was voted best dressed in every every single yearbook. Put that on your resume: best dressed in my eighth grade yearbook. But no, assigning those qualities to yourself, it's, it might as well be the same thing, except again, more grandiose. Most That'd be great. Yearbooks today, it's like you go to some school in, uh, what's that town called? There's an Arizona town that's known for being particularly new age. Oh, what is that town? I'm going to use my lifeline because I want to know. I'm going to type it. heres I'm, I'm going to let you know what I'm typing in. Arizona... Arizona new age town Sedona there we go see for once it works right for once go- for once lady google actually knows what she's talking about and tells me what i want to hear lady google is my alexa lady google is my cortana i tell her what i'm looking for and she she tells me uh but Sedona, Arizona, I believe it's I mean, the description that that lady Google is whispering in my ear right now, and maybe you can hear it. Is she's saying Sedona is like Disney World for the new age traveler. So that's exactly the town I was talking about, like, but maybe at like high schools in Sedona, Arizona, where everybody's new age, they have superlatives in the yearbook, like most enlightened, most likely to achieve enlightenment. You know, maybe they have those sorts of superlatives, but either way, they're things that you can't assign to yourself. And you have to be very careful about that. But the interesting thing about these things is sometimes it's important to keep them in mind. Like if you do think, like if somewhere in the back of your mind you feel like an old soul, a part of you kind of has to know that. You don't want to verbalize it. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to go through the world thinking I'm an old soul. And look at all these young souls doing stupid. Oh, oh, you think fireworks on the 4th of July are cool. Well, us old souls don't. I'm an old soul. And I think 4th of July fireworks are for, for young, stupid souls. Because I'm smart and I'm wise and I'm enlightened. I'm an old soul. And that's O-L-D-E. My friend Miles dad played in a band called styrofoam soul and soul was spelled s o e s o u l e. So old O L D E soul s o u l e. But yeah, these are traits that you can't assign yourself. But in the back of your mind, sometimes it's good to be aware of it. And I would say, like, here's a specific situation where I know somebody who I would describe as an old soul. I know somebody very well who I would describe that way. And this person has had a bunch of problems with a significant other of theirs who's not only a bit younger than them. And and I know this significant other and and think that this person is great. You know, I, I have no criticism of them as a person whatsoever. But there have been issues with my friend where, you know, he's not only older numerically. Not a ton. We're not talking like 10 15 years, but actually close, close to a decade, actually. And I don't want to give too many details. But that does matter, up to a certain point, you know, it does, you do have different cultural experiences, for one. Once you start getting like, into like more than five years older than someone, I think you have different cultural experiences, different childhoods, you consume different things watch different shows saw different movies listen to different music so and that stuff's superficial that doesn't really matter if you connect with someone but this person's significant other i believe is just younger in general not in an immature way but just just kind of a younger personality and maybe that's a good thing for an old soul maybe an old soul should want a young soul to be with i don't know i can't say but i had to remind my friend i had to say I keep in mind that you're numerically older, but you're also, I would consider you an old soul, and, and you have to factor that in when you communicate with, with this person. You have to factor that in when you're, in, in, in what you're going through. And you also, your education and profession also give you an added amount of credibility And again, I'm not going to get into specifics just out of respect. I try to be respectful sometimes about people's personal information, but I do think this is a good example of, I had to, but but see, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, this person saying, I'm an old soul and that's the problem. As the friend, I had to say that. I had to be the one to remind them of that fact, which I, I do see as a fact. I've known this person a long time. And so that's a situation where maybe it's good to remember sometimes that you, don't have to, you can get away from souls and just say, I have a different disposition. I have a different disposition from someone else, and that has to be considered. Like, I have to remember that. I have to remember that this other person isn't me. They don't necessarily have my disposition. So that's something you have to keep in mind. But yeah I don't think of old souls though necessarily as someone who just acts like an old sage and just oh he's such an old soul all he does is just sit in a chair all day he's 20 years old but he's living the life of an old man oh no, he, he walks with a cane even though he's 20 years old and physically fit because he's just an old soul and that's what old souls do No, I think of old souls as often meddlesome they're often provocative the old souls I've known There are often people who like to play tricks, just like the the example I explained. And again, the Jungian archetype of the old man slash trickster. Those two things are correlated. But yeah, you you can't, yeah, it it probably isn't a good idea to ever think I'm enlightened or I'm an old soul. It's probably never good. And we all kind of try to signal that. You know, we all want, nobody wants to to have people think they're dumb. Nobody truly wants that. And there are smart people who convince people that they're dumb. It's kind of like I was talking about yesterday about an interesting person convincing people they're boring. You have smart people who act really stupid and lowbrow, because it's kind of like camouflage. It kind of hides their true nature. And maybe that's just who they are. Maybe that's what they find entertaining or interesting, whatever. I'm not speaking for anybody else. But sometimes we kind of try to present the opposite of what we are as some sort of defense to kind of hide ourselves to blend in, I don't know, whatever it is. But I do find it interesting that there are certain qualities that are important to us. Like we all want to die feeling wise, I feel. I can't imagine anybody who if given the options like before you die, do you want to gain wisdom? Someone's like, no, never, never. Most people would say yes. You know, there there are certain qualities that I think, if someone were to ask you, do you want to achieve enlightenment? I mean, that's sort of a Pandora's box. I mean, I, I feel like enlightenment is sort of the reverse of Pandora's box. Enlightenment, even though it's not confined, even though it's maybe the most open state that you can imagine an individual human being being in. In some ways, it's like putting everything back in Pandora's box and restoring tranquility again. So it's, it's not really an issue of like, if you ask someone like, do you want to be enlightened? Nobody's going to say no. Nobody's going to say, hell no, hell no. I'd rather stay stupid. Because enlightenment, though, isn't correlated with intelligence or stupidity. It's a spiritual state. And even though it relates to your conscious living state, it's it really has nothing to do with intelligence. It really has nothing to do with with the scale of intelligence at all. I would say it has nothing to do with it, actually. But most people wouldn't turn down the option if it were that easy, if it was as simple as just flipping a switch. And sometimes that's what people think they're going to get through psychedelic drugs. Sometimes that's what people think they're going to get through any number of things. Any number of experiences that are kind of designed to facilitate that. And I'm not saying they don't. But I think sometimes you can trick yourself by thinking that you can just consume a material substance that will help you achieve a state that transcends your material existence. But... um, You... You know, if, you, if you're just even just like a normal human being, like a normal secure human being, it can be difficult not to try to signal something about your cognitive level. And I'm going to avoid going on too much of a science rant here, but it does relate. Where I've mentioned before how like people who are part of what I would call the science fandom fandom meaning these aren't people who have a direct relationship to science as an industry. Like these aren't scientists. These aren't people who have a direct relationship. They're just normal people who work any kind of job and do all kinds of normal things, play video games, cruise the net. They they like to cruise the net. But these people, they're constantly reminding everyone that they're really into science, Oh, I mean, I'm so into science, man, dude. I'm just really into science, dude. Science rules. Science rules. Science rules. You know, they, that's kind of their mo. And while they might be genuinely interested in some of that, like some of what you know, I don't. I'm not gonna say that they're they're not genuinely interested in the discoveries of science. I'm not gonna say they're not genuinely. I'm not gonna say it's fake. Of course it's not fake. They're not faking their interest. But there's something about the way that they emphasize it. There's something something about the way that they bring it up that community it seems like they're screaming at people, "I'm smart. I just I need you to know I'm smart." Cuz there's this sort of presumption built into our culture today that if you're interested in science, you're basically as smart as the scientists too. like you that you have to be not not even that. It's more like if you're interested in science in our culture today, there's this assumption that you have to be smart. Oh, you have to be smart to be interested in science. And maybe you do have to be smart in a certain way to understand it. I mean, there's ideas that I'll read about and I have no idea what they're talking about. I have zero idea. I don't even know where to begin. It's truly beyond me. I'm not smart in the way that some scientific analysis requires someone to be. I'm not smart in a lot of ways uh, that scientists are, for example. And it's funny because a friend of mine who also listens to the show mentioned something to me about the show and jokingly referred to me as anti-science and then he and then he 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 told me too that like later he heard an episode where I said the, that phrase where I kind of pre he he said it's sort of a preemptive strike where like when I'm going on a rant about science I have to jokingly like refer to myself as anti-science and explain that I'm not actually opposed to the scientific uh, process I'm not opposed to the scientific method but this science fandom the cult of science. That's actually quite a mainstream religion at this point, more than a cult. The mainstream religion of science, you know. But I, I always have to give some kind of like preemptive disclaimer or a preemptive strike. But he was just joking about me being anti-science. But he sees it the same way. He agrees with me. So there was no. He wasn't serious. Um, but you know, just to play into that, if you look at, let's say that. There are all these let's let's like use the model of a Venn diagram and reality is all of these overlapping circles and in the center of that and this probably isn't a perfect illustration, but I'm going to try here. You know in the center of all of these circles is what you might call the closest thing to objective reality that we can possibly comprehend. You might call that nature. You might call that the Dharma. And that's in the center of all of these, probably an incomprehensible amount of circles. But if you stick to like us as human beings and the ways that we understand the world, we can at least limit the number of circles (laughs) we're using here. Uh, But one of those circles is going to be science. And I would never say that that circle shouldn't be part of the larger Venn diagram of reality, the fundamental nature, the Dharma. I would never say that science should be left out let's throw it out but i would say its circle is equal in size to some of the other circles that people think are in opposition to it and some of the, some of the people who are part of the science fandom would probably want certain circles to be gone they would want what they consider pseudoscience what they consider mysticism, because what I always laugh at is I forget that mysticism is used as a, as a pejorative today. Every once in a while, I'll be listening to something or reading something where someone says, well, the problem with him is he's, he's prone to mysticism. He's prone to mystical thinking. I mean, people say that about Jung. You know, it's one of the criticisms that some people make about Carl Jung is that he was a mystic. And sometimes they'll use that as a pejorative. And I forget about that. I forget that that's used in that way. But mysticism would certainly be one of those circles, even though the people who believe the science circle in this Venn diagram, the people in the science circle, they probably actually believe that the the science circle should actually be around everything else. Or they, sh- they think it should be in the center. Like all roads lead to science as the ultimate reality, which is not an exaggeration of how these people view science. They think that science is God, essentially. They think that all roads lead back to science, and that science is the Dharma, that science is the fundamental nature of reality, when it's part of it, or, or maybe a better way of putting it is it's one way we can use to understand one part of nature nature in the broadest sense but also nature in very specific settings the way that science studies nature the way that it really digs in and analyzes physical nature but also the larger nature so that's uh I don't know, just, it's not that I ever, I I never have the view that science should be thrown out completely. Sometimes I don't want to hear about it. Sometimes I don't want to hear everything rationalized in the context of modern science. That doesn't mean I think the entire idea should be thrown out. That doesn't mean I think people should stop you know, pursuing scientific interests, you know, I don't feel that way at all. But there are times where I'm like, let's not hear about science for once. Let's talk about this without reverting to whatever this year's paper discovered about that, you know, like, like why don't we talk about it without that? And and if and if it comes up naturally, it comes up. But the idea that everything has to be rationalized in a scientific context, including the mystical, and I've, I've mentioned this complaint numerous times, but why not mention it again, which is just that one of my pet peeves about some religious practitioners, and even mystics, is that it seems like they're constantly looking for approval from scientific institutions. They will do interviews with PhDs who believe in, let's say, psychic phenomena, and they'll they'll try to measure these things that really don't need to be measured. And it's like trying to get attention from a girl who's not out of your league, but she'll just never like you. She'll never like you like the way that modern science, specifically the institutions have been framed. They're never gonna like mysticism. And that to them is a dirty word. They're never going to want to play into that. They're never going to want to acknowledge psychic phenomena. And if they somehow stumble onto it themselves, you know they're not going to credit you. You know, Dr. Dean Radin has done tons of research into psychic phenomena and ESP and these, you know, synchronistic sort of experiences, but let's say that the scientific institutions end up stumbling upon that too. Do you think they're going to give him credit? And that doesn't mean he should stop doing what he's doing or that he shouldn't try to frame these and prove them in a scientific context. But it kind of gets back to the idea that I brought up a while back of people think that without NASA, we can't experience space. They think that we we need NASA to have some kind of relationship with space. And while their tools help us see space, and I would never deny that they help us go to space and explore space, I would never deny the role that NASA has had in bringing space up close to us. But we don't need NASA to have space. We don't need the stamp of approval from scientific institutions to experience psychic phenomena and you can use any word you want for those things you can invent your own word for it it turns out many people have over a large span of time but this like it's like trying to get attention from a girl who's just not going to like you that's kind of how i see that of of when it's it's like i was saying about the science fandom which is like they don't it's not just that they think science is the circle around everything else, rather than just an equal size circle. You know, it has a seat at the table, but its seat is no more ornate, or majestic than any other chair. Science is not sitting on the throne. But it's not just that people in the science fandom believe science sits on the throne. They think some of these other ideas should be kicked out of the castle. They should be kicked out of the palace. And I want to make it very clear that even though I don't believe science sits on the throne, I don't think it should be kicked out. I'd be upset if it was kicked out. And I didn't like it when there were people who were trying to kick it out. I didn't like it when evangelicals had more cultural power and they were trying to shut science out of the conversation completely. I don't think that was the right approach. I disagreed with that then, and I would disagree with that now. But that's also different than me saying, sometimes I don't want the conversation to include science. Sometimes I don't want to have to be chasing the approval of you know, of the scientific institution. I don't believe in, in chasing their approval every time you open your, your mouth. You always have to justify and explain things in some sort of scientific rationale, and I feel like that's a huge mistake that our culture has made. And And we've gotten very poor at making a distinction about those specific responses to science. Like the fact that there is a difference between not wanting science to, to to be a mandatory part of every conversation. There's a difference between that and wanting science to never play a part in any conversation, to have it be censored or banned or stopped. You know, there's a, there's a difference between those two ideas, just like there's a difference between wanting science to have a seat at the table versus letting it sit in the throne. There's a distinction between all of those ideas, but things have just been it's it's amazing to me that people have doubled down on the teams. People have doubled down on, you know, because there are people out there who are completely anti-science, and I don't agree with them either. I don't agree with people who completely dismiss all scientific discovery. But old souls, you know... The way I see that is an old soul, you know, in my experience, the people who I would consider old souls, they have a certain sense of freedom. It's almost like they know that they can break boundaries. It's almost like they know that they don't have to play the rules of that game. Because it is like they've seen it all before. But because they've seen it all before, they're not necessarily caught up in the little dramas. They're not necessarily caught up in the, little, the petty little experiences as you grow up, as you go through life. I think that is why the trickster idea is so heavily associated with the idea of the old man, of the sage. Because it's almost like he understands that it's all a joke. He understands that it's all fake. He understands that he can actually do things just for fun that he doesn't have to take it all that seriously. So I think that that kind of, that goes hand in hand. I think that, I mean, in some ways, I I think sometimes you see somebody who really embraces the idea of the sage, but they're, and they might not call themselves that, but everything about them is trying to communicate to people, I'm a wise old man. Come talk to me. I'm a wise old man. I'm a wise old man. A wise woman? A wise old man? And I think some people are trying to communicate that in the same way that some people who are part of that science fandom, which is the reason for this science rant, but people who are into the science fandom want people to think that person is smart. They want people to be like, oh, Bobby must be really smart because he just he reads all the latest oh on his facebook page he shares all the latest articles about science he must be smart and so there's that signaling you know we do it with all kinds of qualities it's not just intelligence i mean there are people who are into eastern religion who it's like every part of their existence is screaming from the inside I just want you to know I'm enlightened. I just want to th- I just want to tell you I'm enlightened and so they adorn themselves like an enlightened person. They dress like a guru. They talk in a certain way. They're trying to signal to you that they are an enlightened practitioner. Of a given spiritual discipline. And I probably run that risk all the time when I delve into those things. I think we all run that risk, which is why this isn't something that makes us pieces of shit. We are all signaling. You know, we, we are all trying to signal to people that we are something. That's just one of those base human insecurities. And and you can escape it. I believe you can escape that. But I do believe most of your life you are signaling those things, you are hoping that people think of you a certain way, at least up to a point. And in the same way people virtue signal, in the same way that people make otherwise hollow statements relating to sociopolitical events, with the hope of their peers approving of them and thinking they're cool and thinking they're up to date and current and progressive and good. And then the virtue signaling that goes on on the other side, which is I don't know about as misguided, but it's definitely might be a little misguided. Like people who become these reactionary born again Christians, and suddenly start talking about how the problem with kids today is they they need to go to church. They need to go to youth group. And it's like, have you ever been to a youth group? I haven't. But going back to that friend, the friend who dropped out of high school and you know, became very successful. I remember he went to a youth group meeting because he liked a girl who, uh, she was a part of, she was like an active part of this youth group and he liked her. So he went to her youth group meeting, which was a bunch of kids from my school that I didn't know were connected to each other. Like I didn't know they had this secret youth group. Like, I mean, they would wear sweatshirts. I mean, it wasn't exactly a secret that these kids were in youth group, but they were otherwise popular kids. They were otherwise like, you know, liked kids. It wasn't like they were the homeschooled kids who are like it wasn't like they're Jehovah's Witnesses or anything. I mean, they were just normal kids. But my friend went to their youth group meeting and and he said it was seriously like the most unfun, like lame social experience he had ever had. It was like there was some sort of like wholesome but somewhat popular athletic dude there. And like their idea of the funniest thing in the world was to like put shaving cream on his face like he had a beard. And I mean, it's not like that's horrible. I mean, I'm not saying that makes them bad people. <laughs> they found fun in that. I mean, so many of the things like boys and girls do when they're coming of age is lame. But still, like he went to that and, you know, he you know, public school wasn't, you know, he had to leave public school. Like, he couldn't handle public school. So you can imagine how he felt being at a youth group meeting where, like, just the humor, the, everything was just so tame and lame, as they say. Tame and lame. And it was, just, it was funny to me. I mean, it was, it was probably a moment that had to be described to you by him. But at the time, I remember knowing, even though I hadn't been to this meeting, even though I'd never been to a youth group meeting, I could just feel what he was saying. Like, when he was talking about, like, the things they were doing that they thought were funny. I was just like, oh, yeah, I can completely imagine how that felt. Um, But that's sort of the funny thing. Like, when someone kind of becomes this neo-reactionary, born-again Christian type. And they start being like, everybody just needs to... The problem is that... uh, The problem is hookup culture and the fact that young people just aren't going to youth group and marrying their high school sweetheart and having one sexual partner their entire life. You know, the problem is that, you know, they just become the thing that they actually fled from when they were younger. They're actually becoming the thing that made Christianity uncool. And I mean, I I don't really mind the, what other people would call sexually repressive aspects of religion. So I didn't mean to kind of give that impression, but uh, the things that made Christianity unattractive and completely removed its mystical Gnostic component, like why it didn't even seem like an option growing up if you were a independent minded person, like you're becoming the reason why you didn't become that then. I don't know, it's something I see play out. And I think you have to be careful. Because you can easily become the person who, I don't know, there's this competition over like what belongs in the center of the Venn diagram. And by their very nature, belief systems often try to assert that. When I'm comfortable, just leaving it blank. Because when I try to actually comprehend the Dharma, and I'm not saying that the Dharma is the best possible description of what sh- what belongs in the center of the Venn diagram of everything. I'm not even saying that. What I'm saying is that it's beyond my comprehension. And until I'm able to actually comprehend what's in the center of the Venn diagram of everything, I think I just have to leave it blank. But that doesn't mean nothing's there. But that just might be the best way and the only way that we can possibly understand what's at the center of everything. Because I know that whatever that is that binds us Whatever it is that's at the center of all this, whatever it is that encapsulates all of this as well, that wholeness, that totality, whatever that is, emptiness actually represents it better than anything else that I could possibly come up with. And even though that might sound passive, like I don't know what's I don't know what it's all about. That might sound almost agnostic in a certain way. I'm fierce enough about it. I would say that I'm fierce enough about that to where, you know, I, I, I'll put it this way. While I might not be aggressive enough or audacious enough to be able to pinpoint or assert what's in the center of the Venn diagram of everything, I will say that I'm fierce enough to, that I won't allow anybody else to force something in there either. Like if somebody else wants to say science sits on that throne, science sits at that center. Science is the nail that all of these pieces of thread revolve around. It's the center of the pinwheel. If somebody tries to say that, well, I guess I'm going to channel my wrathful deity. I'm going to do a little deity yoga and say, no, I'm not going to let you put science in the middle. I'm not going to let you encapsulate everything else in the, in a scientific context. You know, I'm not going to let you use this as God. And if you have a problem with that, well, I got another wrathful deity I can channel. And I can do it quickly. And I don't even have to think about wrathful deities. Because I have them at the ready. I have fully integrated those wrathful deities inside of me. (laughs) At one point, that was all I had. At one point, all I had were those wrathful deities. So I'm I'm more than uh, ready to pull them out. And that's how I feel. I do feel a certain fierceness. I do feel a certain wrath. Whenever anybody is trying to tell me or tell the greater the great our our civilization that they know exactly what belongs in the center that they know exactly what encapsulates everything else and I think you can talk about that in an exploratory way I think you can talk about that in a speculative way but as soon as you start telling me telling anyone for that matter that everything revolves around this Well, I'm not going to be very passive about that. I will have to bring out some sort of wrath. Even if it's just me giving an occasional anti-science rant on this show, a quote-unquote anti-science rant. It's something that I won't just go along with. Maybe an old soul would just let it all go. Maybe that's the, the choice of the old soul is that they don't care what's in the center, but they also have seen this happen enough that they don't care if someone does try to force something in because they know it will inevitably go flying out at some point. It's like something, like let's say something is spinning. There's kind of a a little platform spinning. I mean, it's like a, what do you call those? A merry-go-round? Not a merry-go-round. The ones that are at playgrounds, that you yourself, like you you hold to a bar and you run alongside it. I'm, I'm forgetting what that's called. But it's like if you don't hold on how it throws you off, that's almost how it works when someone tries to force something at the center. When they try to make the nature of reality revolve around some idea, some belief, whether it's scientific, whether it's religious, whether it's political, whether it's ideological, when everything is forced to revolve around that idea, yeah, you might be able to put it there. You might be able to force it onto that platform. But that platform is going to spin, and nothing that you put there belongs there. And because it doesn't belong there, it's going to go flying off. And your idea might be worse off for it. Your idea might get discredited more than it otherwise would. It might get more damaged, just like a kid flying off of that spinning platform. The kid breaks an arm. Oh, Johnny broke his arm because he he let go while the that thing was spinning. That might happen to your idea if you try to force it onto the platform. So that's always a possibility. Whenever you try to force the world to conform to your viewpoint, you might succeed short term. And short-term is relative. could be two years. It could be 200. But anytime you try to force your worldview into the center of that Venn diagram, onto the center of that spinning platform, because it is a spinning Venn diagram, there's a good chance that it's going to go flying off. And that idea that you treasured, that idea that you cherished, well, it might be damaged beyond repair because you put it where it doesn't belong. And the old souls, they just smile because they've seen that happen over and over again.